We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. Speaking of childhood trauma, <laughs> uh, <laughs> hello. Welcome to Reread, the podcast where we talk about books or movies that we read and or watched in our youth. And on this episode, we are talking about, I guess, oh, we're doing like the President's Day <laughs> stick. So happy President's Day. Unless you're not in the U.S., in which case, happy just random day. Indeed. <laughs> Regardless, happy whatever holiday is nearest to you, because today we're talking about the greatest holiday film of all time, The Nightmare Before Christmas. This is Halloween, this is Halloween, pumpkins in the of This is Halloween, everybody make a scene, trick or treat. Tim Burns, specifically. A classic stop-motion animated film. Uh, and it's good. I mean, I loved it when I was a kid. And I've loved it ever since. And... Ah, it's just so charming of a film. Since you're the, uh, the naysayer for this episode, sorry to spoil <laughs> it. Uh, how did you feel about this movie before as a child? Morgan. Yeah, so like many children growing up in the late 90s, early 2000s, I our family had a huge, huge stack of Disney VHS tapes that were my rotation of childhood films. And this was not one of them. <laughs> I think my grandparents owned this, which is where I saw it. There's a couple of movies like that where I remember seeing them with my older siblings at my grandparents' house. So, like, Fern Gully, if you've heard about that, is one of those. And there's this other one, which is, like, this really... I literally do not know what the name of this movie is. But it's some movie where it's, like, animal creatures and then, like, the forest. Everyone gets, like, poisoned by some strange thing and they fall into comas, except for these children. And the children have to, like, build some vehicle that can fly to somehow get maybe the... I don't know, but that's another one of these movies. And then Nightmare Before Christmas was one. I can hear you click-clacking and trying to probably look up that movie. <laughs> and I wish you luck. Uh, what's it called? Do you it, know this movie? It sounds so familiar. Okay, pause while we figure this out. Twelve seconds later. Yes, 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 I found it. Ha ha ha. Once Upon a Forest. It's a 1993 animated musical. Oh, I forgot this part. Musical adventure film produced by <laughs> Hanna-Barbera and distributed by Fox, which means I wonder if it's on Disney now. It was distributed by Fox. It was anyway. something. <laughs> it was like traumatic, honestly. But anyhow, Nightmare Before Christmas was another movie that was like a grandparents house movie. So I haven't seen it that many times. In fact, to the point where there were parts of this, I was like, oh, I totally forgot this happened. The part that I have seen a bunch of times, because my family also owned these, like, VHS tapes that were specifically, like, only songs from Disney movies. <laughs> it was just, like, song collages. 
So I've seen certain songs from certain Disney movies a lot of times while mm. like not having seen the movie that much. And Oogie Boogie song was on one of those tapes. That scene I've seen a million times. Everything else from this movie, uh, I know the lyrics to This is Halloween, What's This, and the Mischievous Children song. I forget what the name of it is. People at my school did a Night Before Christmas medley once uh, in choir. So again, like I have random knowledge, but to get to the point, (laughs) I didn't like this movie very much as a child. It just didn't do it for me. It's not that I disliked it. I wasn't like, this is a bad movie. I just kind of thought it was mildly boring. (laughs) And I think part of that is that I've always hated Halloween. So, like, the aesthetics (laughs) of this movie and the Halloween-ness really don't vibe with me. Wait. Uh, I had a number of traumatic childhood Halloweens. And at this point, I consider it a bad luck charm and refuse to leave the house during (laughs) Halloween. So... What the heck happened to you on Halloween? Well, the one and only time I've been to the ER was not on Halloween itself, but it was at like a Halloween party. So wait, what the heck happened? My elementary school used to have some sort of like Halloween haunted house thing that happened there around Halloween. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I don't know, but like we went every year, so I was there and at my elementary school there were like you know those like metal benches. So there was just a whole bunch of them right outside of the library. And it was just like where people like ate when it was warm and stuff. Anyhow, for some reason, me and my family were talking to like family friends and stuff like right out there. And some kid came rushing out of the library and ran right into me. And I fell, literally just fell backwards and hit my head first on the metal bench and then on the ground. Passed out. (laughs) As you do. Not for very long. Under a minute. Darkness took me. And I strayed out of thought and time. And then, you know, went to the ER because I was bleeding from my head and had hit it. (laughs) On multiple things. And I was freaking out because I was like, I was in second grade. So a wee one. Anyhow, went to the ER. Thought I was going to have to get stitches for a few seconds there, but luckily my head is very sturdy, as has been proved at multiple points in my life, and is not easily damaged. Luckily, I escaped with just a cut. I didn't even need much other than a little bandage. Uh, No concussion. I was fine. Yeah, anyhow, that was one of of many Halloween incidents. (laughs) Uh, I think I spent multiple years that I had food poisoning on Halloween. What the? So, like... Yeah, and this was all in, like, elementary school, so it's just, like, really soured the Mm. entire holiday for me. The point is, (laughs) just, like, Name Before Christmas wasn't vibing with me on a number of levels. (laughs) Um, I feel like every time I, when we were talking about what movie to do, and was it you that, no, I brought this up, and you're like, yeah, let's do this. And I feel like I, I always uncover some kind of trauma afterwards of like, oh my god, why did we even do this then? This is this sounds. It's not like, like Nightmare Before Nightmare. Christmas has trauma for me. I, it is funny because as as I was watching this movie, a part of me was wondering because you're not into body horror, and there's a lot of casual body horror in this movie. A part of me wondered like, 
oh, is this what started that thing oh. where you just dislike this certain... No, and that's... It didn't, like, endear this movie to me, but no, my... I have no, like, bad body horror associations with this. The aesthetics of this movie in general are not something that I'm drawn to or very interested in, and I feel like a huge part of enjoying the movie is enjoying those aesthetics. Uh-huh. There's a reason there's, like... So much Nightmare Before <laughs> Christmas gear at Disneyland because yeah. people just love this like sort of goth, spooky aesthetic that I just don't care about in any way, shape, or form. Like, good use of Sally being able to detach her limbs. Like, from a narrative perspective, good use. It doesn't like... <sighs> it's not something I love to see. It's, it doesn't really bother me, but I'm also just kind of like, uh <laughs> Well, anyway, I I feel like we're really uh, burying the the lead here, which is yeah. What did you think this time around? I think that I continue to be like objectively, this movie is good, <laughs> and I will say that like I downloaded the entire soundtrack this time because I had only owned like four songs because I had forgotten that I liked both Jack and Sally's little lament moments and stuff. So I, I downloaded the rest of the soundtrack because I do enjoy it. And I also had forgotten that Danny Elfman voices uh, Jack's singing voice. And I was just like appreciating how all in he went on his performance and everything. But yeah. it was very much like an objective appreciation as opposed to like being emotionally touched. And I think, well, we'll get into it. I thought it was strange that I wasn't more emotionally touched because I think there's a lot about Jack that is can be very easy to empathize with as an adult in a way you can't as a kid, probably. And so I was kind of interested to see that I wasn't developing that sort of emotional attachment to him. And I have some thoughts on that, but those can wait. I have some thoughts on that, too. Oh, I'll keep the summary nice and short, then, which would be <laughs> easy because it's a nice and short movie. Indeed. So, Nightmare Before Christmas, we open on this discovery that there are multiple different holiday lands. For instance, you can tell this is an American movie because there's a Thanksgiving land. (laughs) And the honest trailer for this movie makes a joke about how there are no Jewish holidays. Classic. I'm going to just put this criticism up front because it really did throw me off up front in the movie. I think they shouldn't have just had the circle of trees. They should have just had the whole forest and mm. shown like a whole bunch of different holidays because it's really so American in this way that's like very off-putting. And not even like all Americans, like cr- white Christian Americans. <laughs> but putting that aside, we then delve into Halloween land where they've just pulled off another great Halloween and they're celebrating and they're especially cheering on their leader, the pumpkin king, Jack. And Jack's like, yeah, great job, everyone. Huzzah. Huzzah. But you can tell there's something off with him. And he sneaks off and sings this whole song. He's just not feeling it anymore. Like, he really can't get into that Halloween mood. He doesn't feel like himself. And listening in on this is Sally. And she clearly feels like she can relate to him in some way, but she doesn't approach him to tell him this and he wanders off and stumbles into another world a world of christmas (laughs) 
this rejuvenates him. He's so excited by this discovery. He's so, he has so many questions about what this land is and what this means. So he goes back and he tries to explain Christmas to the people of Halloween Town, but they just don't get it. So then he starts trying to experiment with Christmas related <laughs> items and stories and tries to dissect them. And by experiment, I mean like he's literally doing scientific experiments on them. Try and figure out what it is that is drawing him so much to this, trying to distill the essence of Christmas so that he can replicate it or gain something from it. <laughs> uh, there's, a, there's a great moment that I love. Uh, he like crushes up an ornament and puts it in some liquid. In a beaker. Yeah, and it has a reaction. And he says something like, fascinating reaction. But what does it mean? Yes. It's just it's just such a such a silly moment. There's I never mind. I can please continue cuz I could just go off on all, all the all the little moments scattered throughout this film that I just love. Yes. While he's doing all of this, the people of Halloween Town are like, "What the heck is going on?" <laughs> and Sally, who she's like a stitched together person, very Frankenstein's monster-esque to the point where she has, she was created by this scientist who's very, doesn't want her going out. He tries to kind of keep her to himself. And so she has to keep poisoning him to like escape. <laughs> and she's very concerned about Jack. So she shows up and like gives him something that causes him another of these moments of joy but then disappears before they could actually talk about it. And she also has a premonition that whatever he's doing with Christmas is going to end in disaster. And at some point, Jack realizes that what he wants is to take Christmas for himself. He's like, I don't want to just be experimenting with it. I want to do Christmas. So he ropes the rest of Halloween Town into doing Christmas with him this year. They're like a little thrown off, but they do it in their own very special way. That in no way resembles actual Christmas. And he specifically has these three little trickster children, which I think they're like referred to as like the boogie boys at some point. <laughs> Their names are Lock, Shock, and Barrel. I'm not sure those names are ever actually said, but I could be wrong. <laughs> he gives them the task of abducting uh, this person he calls Sandy Claus so that he can be Santa Claus for the year. And at first they kidnap the Easter Bunny, which is pretty funny. <laughs> but they do eventually kidnap Santa. Jack's like, okay, Sandy, you can take a break for the year. I got this. Children, take good care of him. And they're like, haha, we will. Fingers crossed. And they give him to this uh, mysterious, sinister character called Oogie Boogie, who proceeds to sing a song about how he's gonna f***ing wreck Santa. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. It's a weirdly sexually charged scene. <laughs> <laughs> I've thought this oh, my entire life. Interesting. I, I have never gotten that vibe from that song. Really? Yeah. Okay, like, Santa is literally um, bound... Okay. At one point, like, his hands are bound above his head. Yes. And I understand this is not inherently sexual. I'm getting to it. But, like, at one point, he's, like, thrown across railroad tracks in very much, like, a 
way that's reminiscent of like old movie heroines and like westerns uh-huh. and Oogie Boogie's like dancing with him and spinning him around and the song is very like jazzy and has some sultry edges and the way that Oogie Boogie talks about him if there's one thing I would stake my money on it's that there's this weird sexual overtone to that scene huh but anyhow okay I well he's gonna like he's Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna fully make this argument. Oogie Boogie like has these dice and he rolls them to decide what he's gonna do, and he specifically is gonna like torture and kill Santa. Like that's pretty clear. But like it's very much a game for him. He's playing with his food. Within that game energy, again, is like I'm not saying Oogie Boogie's actually going to do anything sexual. I'm just saying there's like that sort of weird. The same way, like, pretty much any time, like, a sexy woman is caught by a bad uh-huh. guy. <laughs> and there's that, like, sort of, like, I'm gonna, you have no idea the things I'm gonna do to you. Like, if it was between, if that was a, if that was Sally in Santa's position, we would absolutely be reading this scene with sexual overtones. Like, yeah. And I think we are meant to read it with Santa. And I think that's part of the dark humor of the scene is that it's Santa. Huh. So... I do have thoughts about Oogie Boogie song because there's there's a lot of uh, I guess there's not a lot, but there is some discourse about the character of Oogie Boogie and whether he's a and racist race? caricature. So yeah, I was wondering about that too. We'll fight more about this later. Let's let's finish the summary. Yes. <laughs> okay. So Sally's been trying to dissuade Jack from this whole thing, but he has like not been paying attention. And so she makes one last ditch attempt to stop him from taking off to be a Santa Claus by uh, pouring this alchemical mixture into the water that creates this very thick fog. But luckily, Jack's dog Zero has a nose that lights up so he can guide the way. (laughs) And so they take off. Jack goes around the world delivering toys. These toys are horrible. Children are traumatized. The police are called, and the military of the world mobilizes to take Jack down. He is literally shot out of the sky. Wonderful. But yeah, so Sally can see this is going wrong. So Sally takes off to rescue Santa Claus to hopefully stop this before it gets out of hand. But she ends up getting captured by Oogie Boogie. Jack is shot down. Luckily, he manages to survive, but everyone in Halloween Town thinks he's dead. Jack realizes that although he f***ed it all up, this whole experience has actually rejuvenated his love for Halloween. So he goes back to free Santa Claus so Santa Claus can put Christmas right and discovers that both Santa Claus and Sally are being held by Oogie Boogie. So they show down. Jack manages to unravel Oogie Boogie, uh, pulling the cloth off over him to reveal he's just a whole bunch of bugs stuck together. In a sack. Jack's like, sorry about this. Santa's like, you better be. (laughs) And he takes off to go bring Christmas everywhere. And if he finally brings some snow to Halloween Town. And all the Halloween Town people are like, whoa, incredible. And Jack realizes that he actually is really into Sally. And so they get together. The end. That was so quick. I know. That was unbelievable. So 
I know at the beginning of this episode that I said that I really love this film, and I do, but there's a few things to consider for me. I love musicals. It's a guilty pleasure for sure. And I also love stop motion animation. And this movie has both of those things. And the aesthetic is really cool. There's just something about the animation. Just it's so nice. It's like the um, what's what's it called? ASMR, but animation form of it for my brain. It's just I look at it and it's like, ah, oh, this feels nice. But my hot take is that as a movie, specifically as a plot, it's just not a very good story. I feel like there's so many problems with it that are obscured by the fact that Danny Elfman is such an amazing composer and that the people who worked on the animation side of it, there was so much talent. And I don't know like, if you read anything about the production of this film but the production was a god <laughs> mess it started out as a poem that tim Byrne wrote back in the early 80s that he then tried to turn into like a 30 minute special and it just didn't happen then as tim Byrne, because he started out as an animator at disney but then he went off and did his movies Wee's big adventure and then I think the first Batman. So he got some like industry cachet and was important enough to be like, hey, here's this poem I wrote 10 years ago. Let's make it to the movie. And people were like, sure, why not? He teamed up with one uh, screenwriter. They had a falling out creative differences. So then Tim Burns like, you know what? This should be a musical. Think of the respect. No. Think of the prestige. No, no, no. Think of. Tony! Tony, 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 Tony! Ah. So then he and Denny Elfman worked on songs together, and then they brought in an another screenwriter to fill in the spaces between the songs. And she, Carolyn Thompson, I think was her name, she wrote a script, and then it was just like heavily revised to the point that at least Tim Burton, or maybe the director claims that none of her lines made it through into the final thing. So there's kind of uh, some animosity there. And then Disney originally was like all for promoting this movie. And then it was made and they're like, this is fucking weird. We're going to attach it to a different production company because we don't want Disney's name on this. Just so ironic now. Yeah, I know. And then it, it came out and it was a huge success. And Disney is like, oh, well, uh, yeah, this movie is a mess, at least story wise. There are moments that make no sense that you kind of just don't care because the movie's just fun. But like there, when um Jack decides to come back and rescue Santa, he immediately heads straight to Oogie Boogie's house or i don't know how to describe it how did jack know that santa was at oogie boogies nobody told him that he has no idea that that's the case but he goes there anyway and you know what it's fine we don't need an extra scene and stop motion animation is such a time intensive process mm -hmm. that it just wouldn't make sense to have like 
a three second exposition scene where Jack runs into town and says, where's Santa? And then somebody yells at him. He's at Oogie Boogie's because to make that those three seconds would take hours and hours and hours of filming to actually make it work. Anyway, yeah, I so there's just like a lot of elements that I appreciate. Like I appreciate the relationship between Jack and Sally, but at the very end of the movie, he describes her as his dearest friend. And up to that point in the film, we've seen them share the screen maybe in one scene where they actually talk to each other. So yep. that doesn't make sense but thematically it's very interesting for a lot of different things that i think are really really interesting are are just like super fun to break down but i guess we can start with your thoughts about why it didn't connect with it with you but that's sort of my initial thought of why it didn't connect because given all these elements this movie should just be seared into my heart but it's not it's not like the way The Lion King was for me as a kid, where there was a two-month stretch where I rewatched The Lion King every single day because I just f***ing loved that film. I would never do that with Nightmare Before Christmas, even as a kid. The songs are great and amazing. Like you said, it's objectively good, but there's just something stopping the subjective side of, of me really, truly loving it and embracing it as a friend or something. I don't know. Yeah, it is strange because I feel like Jack's whole plight should be one that's very easy to empathize with. Like, as an adult, especially, you know, as creative people or just people living life, sometimes you look at what you're doing and you're like, why was I, where is my enthusiasm for this gone? Why did I love it so much in the first place? I can't, like, get back to that that level I was at and I'm so disillusioned with this and so I think that his malaise <laughs> um in that in the beginning portions of the movie is so relatable and and you can really feel I I did do some reading on it and Danny Elfman talks about that where like he was nearing the end of his time with his band I guess and he just was no longer feeling that anymore so he had that exact energy which I think really comes across in his performance and he does kill it as the the singing voice the yeah. the talking voice is another person but um like you can really feel that so I, I would hesitate to say that this movie doesn't have heart but i think part of the issue is that like the resolution's not good <laughs> so we're set up with like all musicals we're set up with sort of an i want song from jack which is basically he wants something that will reinvigorate his interest in life and there's that whole, like, want versus need conundrum where, like, he ends up thinking that what he needs is to do this Christmas thing. What he actually needs is someone who really understands him and Sally. That's a totally fine sort of resolution. But, like, <laughs> part of it is just, like, so he does the whole Christmas thing and then he crash lands and he's like, ah, oh, I f***ed it up. And he's like, but now I want to do Halloween again. And I'm like, I don't really... <laughs> <laughs> I don't really see. <laughs> I'm not sure how this is. <laughs> I just don't follow along with that. Mm -hmm. And then, like you said, I feel like 
There's a number of points. So Sally also calls him her dear friend. I think he calls her my dear friend at their one conversation before the end. Mm. So like we are establishing they're supposedly friends, even though we've also established that Sally's locked up most of the time and has to break out to escape her creators. So like when did they become friends? Who knows? And we do see that she does understand him because she sends him that like bottle of something that creates like a little butterfly and brings him delight and shows that she does understand something beyond the scope of Halloweenness, which I think is part of it. He's just feels like everyone there can only see things this one way. They have no view of anything greater or bigger. And she does seem to have a bigger, larger understanding of everything. And did you watch the video I sent you? I did. I know it's like the guy in the video says it's cracky, but uh, there's this video by this guy named Sideways on YouTube about the music and about musical cues that potentially show this understanding between the characters. And even he's like, this is total just like conspiracy theory stuff. But I, I just do think it brings up like interesting points and he probably is picking up on something there because I do think you can feel, even though we don't see them that much, that there is a connection, but... We can't really understand or like feel it in our hearts. Yeah. <laughs> that there's this connection because we just don't get to see them enough to really understand how they understand each other. And even in the end, Jack's like, oh, you were trying to save me. I didn't realize you felt that way. I'm not even sure how he realizes from her actions <laughs> that she has deeper than friendship feelings. I feel like she would, Sally's the kind of person I feel like would also do that for just a good friend. So, like, they seem to be saying there's a lot of subtext there that I, I'm not sure is totally there. And as much as it was really nice that this movie was short, um, and more movies should be shorter, <laughs> it also felt like, yeah, there were a lot of missing pieces that would have helped emotionally maybe more invested in this movie. I think, too, I don't really... So Christmas for Jack is something bigger and beyond and more than just this Halloween life he's been living. And I think that we're meant to understand that's that's the allure for him, is that it's something different. But, like, I don't know. I think we're also meant to understand there's something about Christmas itself because I feel like if it was just about more or different we would have seen Jack like go to all the other lands mm. and just been like now I'm a land explorer I'm gonna get my kicks wherever I can find them you know but it's something specifically about Christmas that he seems drawn to and I'm not sure we're ever given an explanation for what exactly that is and to be fair Jack doesn't really have that explanation but like I feel like we should be able to intuit something about what he's looking for is it just that sort of sense of love or that is kind of associated with Christmas time or joy or I I don't know what he's getting out of it. Like I said, I think there's just a lot of sort of emotional handholds that I wanted to be given that I wasn't. And I think that just like made it hard to to fully connect, especially because if I since I did connect with the initial premise of like Jack being disillusioned with his life, Having it be this unsatisfactory payoff of like, well, I've done this other thing and and now I love my life again. Yeah. <sighs> that has always bothered, even as a kid, that always bothered me. This is the thing. The f I think the film is trying to have a more nuanced take. It's not saying that like you should stick to your lane. 
but it does really feel like it's saying you should stick to your lane. Mm. And actually, the reason why I brought up the fact that this originally was a poem by Tim Byrne is that in the poem version of this story, first of all, there is no Sally character. So she's made up whole cloth, if you will, for uh, this movie. And the resolution of the poem is also extremely unsatisfying. They suddenly heard a familiar sound. My dear Jack, said Santa, I applaud your intent. I know wreaking such havoc was not what you meant. And so you were sad and feeling quite blue. But taking over Christmas was the wrong thing to do. I hope you realize Halloween's the right place for you. And that feels like it's missing the whole point of this, this character's premise, that he's unsatisfied. He's bored with his life. And I think that's why... Like, Sally is such an important character in providing the nuance that doesn't quite hit because it's not set up enough. Because what Jack wants is novelty, and he confuses that with thinking that's what he needs. But what he needs is just a companion who will recognize, who who feels like him, who will empathize and in her own way provide novelty but be by just being able to interact with him in a way that expands i think like you said expands outside of halloween like the butterfly moment is a really poignant one where it's kind of it's got that spooky atmosphere like she's put together this like witch's brew of a drink or whatever and then the butterfly comes out and it's like this sort of ghastly spooky green color but it's beautiful it's it's this like life-giving thing i think the reason why christmas specifically was picked which is also something that you would only really understand if you celebrate christmas the film is relying a lot on you bringing a lot of this sort of cultural touchstones into the movie to provide the depth and the conflict and and the sense of what's going on with these characters which isn't really a great way to tell a story because <laughs> you're relying a lot on your audience to do a lot of the work. But I think where Halloween is supposed to be spooky and dark and scary, Christmas is brightness. It's happy. It's it's reflected in the music. I mean, this is... Morgan and I are not like musical theory geniuses in any way, but I feel safe in saying that even we can pick up on the fact that in... Halloween land, everything is in minor key, which is kind of a more sadder, somber, darker tone of music. And then you contrast that to Christmas land, which is all in major key, which is bright and lively and energetic. So that contrast is played there. But this is the thing about stop motion animation, because it's so f***ing hard to do. It takes years to make a stop motion animated film because it just takes so long to film any given scene. So I've found that I love the art form. I always feel let down by the stories because it's not like while you're filming it and an idea hits you maybe in during production, it's not like you can be like, actually pause, let's play with this. Let's improvise. No, no, 
You just cannot do that with stop motion because everything has to be so meticulously planned. Literally, you have to photograph 109,000 images for this film. So there is an element that you kind of get locked into the story. So that's where I think some of the resonance of this film, because like you said, like his play, especially as adults, especially for people who have experienced suburbia, it should resonate so hard. But that, like you said, the resolution just happens because it needs to happen because the, the film needs to end. I really honestly feel like there's a pretty simple solution, which is that like he <laughs> up Christmas. He's like, I up. <laughs> I need to get Santa Claus out because I, I know the kind of joy Christmas brings me and I want to make sure these people can have that. Mm. So he goes, rescues Santa and Sally and is like still despondent afterwards. He's like, this is what was going to, this is what was going to do it for me. And now, like, what am I going to do? I just have to go this, back to the same old thing. And, like, you know, after Santa's, like, Ugh, at him, he's like, ugh, I don't, I don't know what to do. And the snow happens, and he can't even be delighted by that anymore because he's like, I can never really achieve this, blah, blah, blah. So he wanders off to be sad mm. on his little hill again. And then Sally goes to him, and they have an actual conversation that shows that she understands. And he has this moment of recognition with her then. And we see him realize that, yeah, her understanding and them being able to talk about this might just be the thing he needs. Less of a big ending and more of a soft, like, I think they can still do that nice little duet at the end. It's just like that he never gets his Halloween vibe back. Instead, what he gets is someone who understands him. I think that like that, that's what they were trying to sort of go for anyways, is that the important thing was having someone understand him. So like, why not just lean into that fully? Instead of, like, randomly having him get back his Halloween mojo for no reason. Or, like, in the process of being recognized. Because it's like, I think creativity, that kind of creative energy or spark, that ebbs and flows. Like, sometimes it just, it snaps into place and other times it doesn't. And there's not really necessarily a rhyme or reason for it. It just, that's life. Like, energy levels fluctuate. Interest fluctuates. And I think that what invigorates reinvigorates the passion for people is is collaboration it's talking to other people working with other people finding people who understand you but can also push you and sally kind of fits that mold and i feel like there's like bits and pieces that are really interesting because you get the scene where you see sally's i guess creator make a new version of sally which is just just him himself basically mirrored but as a woman for me it's like this kind of nice poignant moment where you see somebody who is just looking for a mirror and you contrast that with jack and sally where sally is is more not necessarily like a perfect replica of, of jack in in the way jack thinks she has her own ideas and there's some give and take, or at least that's what it feels like the film is going for. Because I do love at the end for the finale of the film that we see so much of the film, Sally trying to go to Jack 
and then at the end the tables kind of switched and i love that it's jack so like both jack and sally have their own respective themes but at the end it's sally's theme and jack is singing along with sally's theme and this is very small but jack asks permission to be by your side to be by sally's side My dearest friend if you don't mind I'd like to join you by your side Where we can gaze into the stars And sit together now and forever I want to come to you if you will accept me. And there's just something that's really nice about that moment because throughout this film, I mean, he's the Pumpkin King, so he kind of rules everything but it's always been about i'm doing all of this i'm getting the entire town involved i'm making everybody do things for my sake for for my own interests because i want to do this everyone just has to buy into this idea of doing christmas this year because i need that it's the tiniest of tiny character arcs because it really just happens in the five seconds the of the end of the movie but uh, it is moving from I to we. And I think there's something really poignant about that, especially when you're talking about not even just creativity, but just passion for life of moving from I to we to something that that expands and sees and and sees the world differently. Like, I love the idea of what you're saying, that if Jack had ruined Christmas, and suddenly had a moment, this kind of epiphany of empathy. Ah, if all these elements could have been tied together a bit more neatly, there could have been something that really just hits all the heartstrings. As it is, you kind of just get the pieces where the whole is not greater than the sum of its parts. Which is unfortunate because the parts are great. Like I said, the music, amazing. Danny Elfman, uh, incredible. I love the animation. It does wonders for me. It just feels kind of scattered, I guess. Well, and there are so many like great moments. Like I do want to say, like you mentioned during the summary, like that montage of, of Jack like <laughs> experimenting <laughs> with Christmas things is so funny. And so there are these really, really well done moments and elements. But yeah, it's just that it, at least for me, it doesn't emotionally hit that spot. Although I will say I did find it really funny that, like, I was thinking about this within the context of Disney. A lot of people give, especially Renaissance-era Disney, which is when this came out, they give Disney shit because, like, the solution to every princess is, princess is like, I want this, 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 this. And then it's like, the resolution is, but actually what they needed all along was a man <laughs> so i do find it mildly amusing that this has the exact same gender swapped like solution turns out what jack needed all along was a girlfriend which i think uh, obviously strips away some of the nuance of it because i do like yes I, and i wish we, we had seen this because i do like the concept of like specifically like you said that he calls her my dear friend my dearest friend i think i i really enjoy the idea of their friendship is like this hugely meaningful bit of their connection. It's because they're friends that it is what he needs. 
it's not just the romance element, although that's theirs because they're friends. But again, we don't see them really be friends. So, yeah, (laughs) it is it is sad that it wasn't able to also like Sally. I really like Sally. Yeah. Like I had a good time with her. We're we're friends. I like that she, even though she has this thing for him, she's like, I'm gonna tell him that I don't like what he's doing and I think he's wrong. And she, like literally in her song, she's like, I want to stand by him, but I don't know if I can. <laughs> Which is like, good. I'm glad that she sees that what he's doing is a disaster and doesn't let her feelings for him stop her from doing anything to try and like stop this. But I was also very baffled by her background because it didn't really seem to play into anything because there's this whole question about her autonomy. And I'm like, okay, but that has nothing to do with her arc, it feels like. So, I mean, I guess, so, like, her, like, we talked about, like, she was created by this man, and he doesn't want her going out and doing things, so he locks her up all the time, and she has to poison him in order to escape, and at one point, he locks her in a room, and she literally throws herself out the window to get out. Like, (laughs) yeah, it's not a good situation. You don't say. And then he ends up sort of giving up on her and building this new version that is him with literally half of his brain, but female. But I suppose it shows that she already is comfortable defying authority figures or that, like, she knows her own mind. But, like, there's a decent amount of time spent on her worrying about escaping him, escaping him. Like, you were talking about stop motion taking up all this time, and I was like, but I'm not sure what... I'm really getting from this because, yeah, there's not, like, I guess she understands Jack's desire for more because she also desires more than to be locked in the house, I think is what's maybe trying to be said, but. <laughs> <laughs> there is, I'll say, there is a scene, I think it might be the first dialogue between her and her creator where she says something like, I need to get out. I need to basically see the world and do things. And I think that that moment is supposed to parallel Jack's own want for novelty. But it doesn't quite work because the whole point of Jack's character conflict is that his want is not the same as his need. So then you have that moment with Sally where she's saying the same things of like, I want something new and I and I think there is like the symbolism of her being locked away in the tower very much replicates the symbolism of the princess in the tower locked away and trying to get out and usually means waiting for the man to free her. But in this case, uh, she just jumps out the window. Uh, it's like, I don't Well, but I feel like. <laughs> oh, please, please. So like, yeah, Jack, Jack is just bored with his life. And I'm not, I don't mean to downplay what he's going through. Because like I said, I understand, I empathize. I think we all go through those periods of just, yeah, being totally dissatisfied with the lives we're living. But Jack's in a really good situation. He is (laughs) the pumpkin king. Indeed. So like, 
his want need being different makes sense. But like, I would argue Sally needs to get out because she needs to get out because she's being indeed she's in like her father figure is abusive and like literally caging her. So I would say like the contrasting the two makes Jack's plight look less important and kind of makes you go like, oh, what is he so upset about? This girl keeps having to poison her father figure to escape. Like, again, yeah, I understand. I think I get what they were trying to do. But, like, I think it just ends up making me empathize less with him because he looks whiny in comparison to her. Obviously, this is, again, a children's movie. So I'm not, like, really bothered by the fact that Sally's perfect. Like, she's, mm-hmm. we don't see her have a flaw. She's a great person. I mean, I guess she's poisoning her abusive father for you to get out, but I, I'm i not really bothered by that because, again, she's being imprisoned. And when we say poison, like, her creator is not actually under any threat. It's just It just knocks him out. Yeah. Like, there's that scene where he's like, you've poisoned me twice already. And she's like, teehee, three times. And every, you know, laugh track. <laughs> yeah, so I'm not bothered by her being really kind of perfect and not having a flaw but because her situation is worse than Jack's and she's perfect I do think it just makes him look really pathetic in comparison mm-hmm. you're like what is he doing <laughs> why can't he be more like Sally and I also think that's why it has to be him going to her at the end because she is perfect and he has to like show that he has realize that and uh, he comes to her as a supplicant in a way because he's the flawed one but like i just i do think it makes you like jack less and i think that it you're like can he really understand her yes she understands him but can he really understand her (laughs) so i i wish her backstory was a little different and maybe again i think that if if her backstory was different and more obviously tied in with his, again, we wouldn't need as many, we, a whole bunch of scenes to establish that they have this connection. If, like, she was, like, known for wandering off and going searching for places or whatever, like, then it would be like, oh, yeah, she too has this wanderlust and need for exploration and she understands, or maybe she, like, I don't know, builds strange unhalloweeny things like we only see that like butterfly drink the one time but what if she did way more things like that and people were like you're not quite scary enough for halloween mm. or something like that so like she can still have like a backstory that that shows she understands him but that it's more so it's less tragic and doesn't make you feel as much like uh jack's just throwing a tantrum for no reason and why is she trying to take care of him when he has it so good and she has it so bad. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, this is not a problem unique to Tim Burton, but I do feel like Tim Burton in his films, there's usually that one character who is just ultra idealized. And in fairness to Tim Burton, it's not always the female character. Sometimes it's the the male character. Like I'm thinking of Big Fish, which is a movie that I love, but the main character... He basically has no flaws. And I feel like there there's this kind of element of a fairy tale aspect to it where mm-hmm. fairy tales do have characters who are just pure and pristine and and it works because they're it's the the fairy tale 
element. It doesn't quite work here because, again, these characters, the film is trying to show how they're on the same level and why they were indeed meant to be together. But they're, they're not. They're not coming from equal footing. So necessarily the conflicts are going to have to be different and there has to be some maneuvering. Like I said, I, I like the suggested contrast between the Dr. Frankenstein character creating a wife figure who is just himself, and then you contrast that to this more open and kind of give-and-take relationship that's being suggested between Jack and Sally, but we, we just don't see it here. Yeah. And give credit to the music because i think the music's doing so much heavy lifting mm -hmm. like jack and sally's themes are very similar but there is there are differences that are played out and like i said before i love that it's jack singing sally's theme that give and take of the music is really really cool and really powers a lot of the film and i think is what grabs people obviously the aesthetic it's just like, it's just a cool aesthetic. Like, I love the way Jack moves as a character. You know, he's like a Slenderman type. But other times he kind of moves more like a spider. Really dynamic movement. You feel that in the characters. Because both characters also use their bodies in unique ways. Like, <laughs> there, there's the great moment where um, Sally's trying to rescue Santa. And she... You see her, like, leg in the doorway doing the whole sexy, like, ooh, look at that long, sexy leg in the doorway. But she's detached her leg as a distraction. And it's just, like, imaginative ways of thinking about how these characters would move and operate in this world and how they would use their unique traits to get around in the world, resolve conflicts. And so there's that sense of, like, these characters on the, are on the same wavelength through that way as well but the plotting surrounding them unfortunately isn't quite there and i feel like that's <laughs> that's a product of the fact that the screenplay itself was written after the songs were so like the connective tissue is trying to like make sense of the what the songs are suggesting and it's i mean that's tough to do and even the best case scenarios but in this case where it seemed like there was a lot of behind the scenes conflict going on between the creators uh, and the writers and it's honestly shocking that the film isn't worse than it is yeah i think that especially i feel that disconnect where they're like okay we have to do this because we have a song but it's not set up early on I would like to sort of transition. I mean, I think that this can sort of work for both, but like to talking about Oogie Boogie. Sure. Because he comes out of nowhere. <laughs> he is not established. He's locked up in this house place. I think it's implied he's not able to leave because he has to be fed down a chute by these children. So I would assume he's locked up there. And he's not really mentioned before. And then all of a sudden the children... Jack's like, and leave Oogie Boogie out of this to the children that I think are, again, known as, like, the Boogie Boys or something. Like, 
okay, they're clearly going to pay attention. Uh (laughs) And then they're like, oh, we like to try and stay on Oogie Boogie's good side. Why? It's again, it seems like he's locked up. Doesn't seem like he can do anything to them or for them. But they're there. Okay. And he's like, torture fanatic person. Uh, Whatever. Fine. Sure. But like, there's just, he's so disconnected from the rest of the story. We have no idea about what his conflict with Jack is because it's implied that they've had some sort of falling out. Maybe Jack's the one who locked him up. But why? And like, his song's a banger. It's great. But like, it it doesn't make sense (laughs) that he's there in the story. And again, I feel like a solution would be to have the Oogie Boogie figure be Sally's guardian that she's trying to escape from. And therefore, it's more natural why she knows where Santa is and tries to rescue him. And I feel like then also the conflict would be more direct versus like this random figure over here. And then her guardian figure just gives up on trying to control her at some point. Okay, that seems weird that he just gave up after so many years. But sure, fine. (laughs) You know what I mean? It's just like the Oogie Boogie conflict feels very tacked on to have like a villain character. And I think part of this is that the Disney formula had not evolved to allow for the no villain villain strategy they're going for now. And so they were like, well, we have to have a bad guy. <laughs> and Danny Elfman wrote this great fucking song for him. So like right. we're not gonna not have this really fun song. I don't know what to do with that character. What is he he has no relation to anything. Other than I guess he's the opposite of Jack and that he really enjoys what he does, but that's all of Halloween Town, so Yeah. I don't have the same qualms as you with Oogie Boogie's existence. It's just this kind of antagonist i do wish it wasn't as villainous because i just think oogie boogie's kind of doing his own thing but there is this like contrast between him oogie boogie as the bad kind of trickster and jack as the good kind of trickster i guess it doesn't really quite go anywhere but there's something there there's something but yes i he he's he functions as a way to raise the stakes of the movie uh because otherwise if you've kidnapped santa but there's no threat like he's just kidnapped and hanging out in a house the the tension of the end of the movie isn't quite there then because like there's no race against time and to give credit to the oogie boogie scenes like they're really cool and unique and the the fight i guess between jack and oogie boogie is a lot of fun to watch it just kind of operates in that vacuum where there's not anything larger being said so yeah it just feels a bit deflating we've defeated oogie boogie the big baddie of the film santa's back everything's resolved but not really because there's like this larger conflict which is fine like i don't mind a larger conflict just being implied i don't mind the way his character is introduced as like, don't bring Oogie Boogie into this. I feel like that's totally fine. But he's kind of just there for the sake of creating conflict. This artificial, which is okay as long as you're trying to make a larger point. But what the larger point is, unclear. He's gross. He eats people. Uh, apparently he wants to have sex with Santa. 
<laughs> I really say he, watch that scene again. He totally the sexual overtones are there. I mean, I don't I'm not saying that like you're wrong, like you're totally mistaken. I just don't the way I read it, because in the song itself, he suggests that he's going to cook Santa. So it feels more like he's playing with his food to me. Which I mean, I, I guess if you really want to get into it, like consumption is metaphor that is often used in sexual situations and or to describe sex or the desire of sex or whatever. I just Yeah, I'm not saying again that Oogie Boogie actually wants to bang Santa. Uh-huh. That is not the argument I'm making here. I'm just arguing that we're meant to understand that they're there are sexual overtones to his enjoyment of this situation. You know what? I'm I'm gonna rewatch the scene now. Why not? Because literally right now. Okay. Yeah. Why not? I'm so surprised because I've always thought like I remember thinking this as a child. A few minutes later. All right, verdict. Having I mean, just rewatched. I can see why you think the way you do. I don't personally see it that way. I'm not reading it that way. I just think Oogie Boogie's a, a fun-loving guy who's like, I'm going to torture you and be take delight from that. To me, the, the sexual overtones that you're suggesting are not overt enough for me to say like, oh, yes, it's definitely sexual. I think you're just wrong. Uh, you know what? I'm going to have to do research after this and see if I can crunch the numbers, see if I can find anything. And if indeed I find other people are saying that as well, and uh, I'll give you credit for being right. I'm not saying that, like, this is a thing where either of us are right or wrong. Like, you also saw Vagina Dentata in The Two Towers, so, you know, and you might be the first and only person to make that connection. So. <laughs> no, I was absolutely correct there, 100%. I do wonder, though, because I do think that I, this might be something I am more, like, predisposed to seeing than you, because mm. I think from merely a gender divide, it might be something that is just more likely to register to my brain, specifically this idea of the sort of, like, inherent sexuality of the monster Mm -hmm. like i'm thinking sort of vaguely about i mean there's been a lot of work on this but what's coming to mind is uh lindsay ellis's my monster boyfriend video which is like kind of all about this urge especially for women or people who have been othered to like see sort of sexuality or sensuality in the othered or monstrous and i do also think that like Again, like, if if it was Sally in the same situation as Santa, I feel like it would absolutely read sexual. So I feel like, you know, some of the barrier here is that it's Santa Claus, you know what I mean? You know, I've seen so many scenes over the years of, like, women in similar situations in movies or TV shows or whatever, where, like, the bad guy's desire to torture them or whatever for information is also meant to be understood as as somehow sexual. So I think that's part of it. And it's like how some people don't think that, like, James Bond and his villains are really homoerotic. <laughs> I mean, some of them aren't, but some of them really are. 
I don't know. Okay, well, I guess I have two points to that. So one, we do see Sally in the same situation where she's been tied up and that scene doesn't really have any kind of sexual overtone. I mean, it's a much quicker scene and there's different contexts. Oogie Boogie's not really singing. He's just threatening to drop them into a pit, into a pot to cook them. So there's that. I guess the other thing, and this kind of ties back to the unfortunate racial aspect of it, because there is a tendency to, like, this is getting to a much larger issue, but there's a tendency to, like, sexualize black men, to over-sexualize black men. as And that's kind of going back to the minstrelsy history and background where characters of black men were always played as these hyper-sexualized, hyper-lustful types of characters. And this song, Oogie Boogie Song, I mean, it's a jazzy song. The actor singing it is a black person. There's a lot of jazz elements. There's a lot of minstrel elements to it as well. Last time you hear the boogie song. So much so that like even Danny Elfman, he explicitly said he was worried that the song would be seen as racist. And in fact, some people did find it racist. And so I think there is a kind of a sensuality that's applied to black music in a way that isn't applied to other forms of music. Cause like, I hear what you're saying about uh, attributing the monster boyfriend conceit, how there, there is that element of the monstrosity that is tied into the romance, but we have a movie that's filled with monstro monstrosities left and right. And like Jack's the, <laughs> only character we see in this movie have a romance of any sort but he never strikes me as a sexual creature and even the romance at the end never like they share a kiss but it feels weirdly platonic like i will agree with you that i think oogie boogie is a more sensual slash sexual character but i think that's plain that's that's because it's playing into the stereotypes of the genre of music that's playing that contributes these weird feelings of sexuality that you are clearly picking up on. And I like I admit that my perspective as a man looking at this scene, like, yeah, if the genders were reversed, the, the sexual energy of the scene would ramp up immediately. And the fact that it's Santa Claus that's been captured. Santa, who's like the least sexual <laughs> character in all of history. But, you know, to give credit to your perspective, there's a more lively energy to it that, like I said, is playing into potentially harmful stereotypes about mm. what it means to be black and sexual. And because it's also, I mean, it's not just black men, it's also black women, but that's a whole different conversation. Yeah, I do want to say, like, I, I think you're absolutely right about the sort of racial overtones making it feel sexier. What I was, I don't think it's any mistake that, like, well, first of all, for the villain that they chose to 
Danny Elfman chose to compose this song that does clearly draw on music associated with blackness that like we also associate with sexiness and sensuality. I mean, I think I literally said earlier, it's kind of a sexy sounding song. And like, yeah, absolutely. That comes from our cultural stereotypes about those things. And can't really get away from that, that this music, because of how it's been used in our culture, does sound sexy to me. Even understanding all of the like racist (laughs) reasons why it does sound that way. Like, I can't escape those associations. And that's what I'm saying is I think that like, I don't think it's a mistake those associations are there. I think it's intentional, Mm. if racist. Because I was definitely watching that. I was like, I hadn't really remembered how, like, yeah, very clearly black-coded Oogie Boogie is. And the fact that, yeah, he is the villain and is the character that is black-coded. And, of course, our main character, Jack, is a literal skeleton. The whitest possible thing you can be. There's no real getting away from that. Yeah. And, of course, Santa Claus, also very, very white. So, like, I think all, yeah, all that racist energy is there as well. I absolutely agree with that. I just think it's being, it is being weaponized in this particular way. But, no, I, I, I don't mean to to try and say that that's, that's not what's happening with the music. Because, like, if Oogie Boogie was singing, like, a a Danny Elfman song that sounds like the rest of the Danny Elfman songs in this movie, I do think the scene would feel very different. But like, yeah, Danny Elfman took this very particular style of music that a lot of people have particular associations with. And I think he used it for a reason. I will say, given, given everything I've just said and given the credit I've, uh, Given all that, and I don't want to sound like Tim Byrne because, like, I think the the screenwriter specifically, she hated this scene. She hated this character. She felt that they were that Oogie Boogie was a racist caricature, and she wanted the character out, completely removed, that scene specifically removed. And she claims that when she brought up her issues with it to Tim Byrne, that Tim Byrne just dismissed her as saying you're being oversensitive so i don't want to sound like tim Byrne here but i i just don't i think the black coating is there for sure i don't think it's necessarily sexual or it's trying to code itself as sexual insofar as like that is the the intention of the film perhaps i'm wrong perhaps this is something that a lot of people have picked up on i'm just not one of them yeah, it would be interesting to see. I do think that also there's a tendency for villain songs to feel sexy. Like, I don't know <laughs> if you've experienced this with other movies, but I do think there's a tendency because like you can within the the realm of villainy, which is often queer coded or racially coded, etc. Mm. Right. Like you have space for that sort of um, like I don't want to call it darkness because obviously sexuality isn't dark, but within the context of a Disney movie, it kind of is. Yeah. So like, <laughs> I do think that it's, that is a space that is often can lend itself to those sorts of interpretations and one might be predisposed to see those elements in those scenes. 
which is fairly interesting. I think it's totally fair to because there, I mean, there is that history. Like, uh, uh, I forget the characters' names, but like in the Hunchback of Notre Dame, the villain's Frollo. made song is like the most Hellfire. overtly <laughs> just Hellfire. horny song. Just so f***ing horny. The dude is just laying it all out there. This fire in my skin. This And then, I mean, it's not a song, but like and Jafar and Jasmine at the end of Aladdin. Right. Mm. Oh, wow. There's a lot there. Now, pussycat, tell me more about myself. I think I'm going to barf. And you know what? Like, from everything that I've read about this scene, it sounds like Tim Burton just did not appreciate the problematic nature of what was being depicted here credit to danny elfman like he at least he recognized like ooh, this could be misread or well he would frame it as a misreading but or maybe not i don't know i don't want to put words in his mouth but he he recognized the possibility that it would be read as racist tim burn seems to like absolutely refuse and to add context to this tim burn has been criticized for not having a lot of diversity in his films. And it's true. His movies are super, super white. I will quibble with your claim that I am wrong, but I'm not going to say <laughs> you're wrong in return because I, I totally think it's fair given everything we've discussed. There is something off about the scenes with Oogie Boogie on a plot level, on a thematic level, on a character level on a racial level, certainly for you on a sexual level. It's tough because the song is so god <laughs> fun. <laughs> well, and I mean, like, the scene's really well done. I don't want to, like, take away from that. It's it's a bop. But, like... <laughs> and I, I also am not mad about there being sexual <laughs> overtones, necessarily. Am I upset that I do think it is racially coded a certain way? Yes, absolutely. Because, like, if I think back on being a kid... And understanding that there were these kind of sinister sexual overtones, like not thinking of it in that way as a kid, but like thinking of it, understanding in a very basic level, something was going on here. In the same way that, again, as a kid, like I could understand that Jasmine scene with Jafar as like something going on there. But not until now, not until this rewatch, understanding the black coding, but understanding that if I look back on it, that this movie probably did influence me tying certain ideas together in my head that, like, our culture continues to reinforce. And this movie just helped do that. So I am mad about the tying together of this sort of sinister sexuality and this idea of blackness or black music or any of those things. I don't actually mind there being <laughs> weird sinister <laughs> sexual overtones. I'm not into that, but I'm also, like, I do think it adds this... Yeah, dark humor to the scene because it's Santa Claus. It's kind of really, <laughs> f but like in a way that I find kind of funny. Uh -huh. So, like it's it's nice black humor. Like from oh God, of course. Like that's like the worst possible phrase to use when we were just talking about blackness in a different context. But <laughs> you know what I mean. 
Uh, and to be fair, it is. I could totally see Tim Burton making that kind of joke. Yeah, it feels to like something they do. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've <laughs> we really delved more to this topic than I thought we would. I did not come in here thinking that we would have. Again, I think I just assumed this was a foregone conclusion. I was like, yes, we're meant to read this scene sexy. What else? Well, I'm glad that we disagreed about it because obviously there's a lot to say about this. And I don't think we would have said it if we agreed. So funny. In fairness to you, he is the one character that is... I, I think he's the only character that's really sexualized because he reacts to the sight of... Sally's leg. Sally's leg. And it's like, ooh, let me touch that. Okay, I was just curious, so I literally went on Tumblr and typed in Nightmare Before Christmas to see what came up. Yeah. Because Tumblr is my my (laughs) go-to for, like, are other people? (laughs) And one of the first posts that comes up is someone who's written weird fiction that is, okay, this is, like, deeply inappropriate for our supposedly child-friendly podcast. Mm. Uh... I guess if there are any children listening, please leave now. Leave now and never come back. But it's like, imagine exploiting Oogie Boogie's leg kink. It's one of the first (laughs) things that come up. Um, And then if I scroll down, there's one of Sally in her underwear. Nice. Uh, Look, this is the internet we're talking about. Yeah. What what I was mostly looking for is I was like, okay, because you brought up Jack not being hot. Whoa, I never said way. Jack isn't yeah, hot. Yeah, sorry, not being <laughs> sexualized the same way. So I was curious if I went on, would I see? And so far I'm not seeing, I've seen multiple Sallys now, but I'm not seeing any sexy Jack content. Which is funny because I do know people that have big crushes on Jack, so. Fascinating. Indeed. Tumblr knows well, everything. Uh, I feel like I fully have have driven us off the rails. Uh, Indeed. I feel like a lot of our... I know you are more middling about this movie, and I've couched a lot of my praise in criticism. <laughs> Maybe we should just highlight some of the things that we really enjoyed. Anytime there's a montage scene, it's fantastic. Like the scene where uh, Jack goes into all the houses to drop off the presents. I love that scene so much. My favorite part is that he drops off a giant snake at somebody's home. And then the next time we see that snake, it's eating the Christmas tree. And you can see like the box of a present in its belly. Something about that is just so charming to me. Yeah, I mean... uh Obviously, the stop motion is great. Like, they did a really great job. I also... (laughs) God, this is such a weird thing to highlight. But there are a lot of just good, like, visuals. They really obviously thought out scene composition because they had to. And the after Jack falls out of the sky because he's been shot. And he lands in this cemetery in this angel's arms. And (laughs) he's doing the um, Pieta, is that how you say it, pose? Jesus in Mary's arms. Yeah. Um... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so that and then uh in that same sideways video he brought up earlier that the deus irae which is like a piece of music associated with death elements of that are incorporated into one of the montage songs where they're the halloween town people are making their christmas ornament 
their Christmas things to like imply that they're killing Christmas. Yeah. So there's just a lot of like really smart things happening with the music and with the scene composition to like, like you brought up earlier as a negative, but I will say in some ways it's really a positive. It does rely so much on certain cultural touchstones that we might know. Mm -hmm. And I really liked how that was utilized in particular ways. Whereas like, I get the subtext that's happening here. And also, especially with the f***ing Kieta Pose thing. Oh, man. I just, I love when that's used in situations that are, like, mildly blasphemous. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It's just great. Yeah. So, that was, like, a fun time. (laughs) I think there's a trap that animation can fall into where it doesn't necessarily rely on the medium to tell a story. With animation, you have this expanded palette of ways to tell the story visually. And I think a lot of animation films struggle with that to tell their story visually. This film does, like, it's so good at crafting moments that tell you all you need to know about certain characters, certain conflicts, whatever the case might be. Like the mayor character. We don't see that much of the mayor character but we can tell visually what he's like because he has like the spinning face that goes between deliriously happy and morbidly sad it's a very simple thing but it's a very neat visual trick to tell us this is a character who fluctuates between two extremes and it has fun with that like the, the scene at the end when it starts snowing in Halloween land and they're doing a reprise of what's this and the mayor sticks out his tongue to like get a snowflake and the moment he does that he has like the sad face but then it flips around to the deliriously happy face and it like plays into the scene because the song it's so infectiously catchy so there's a lot of those small subtle cues like even even Jack and Sally's themes they it feels so natural when Jack comes in the, at the end and starts singing Sally's theme, or I should say in the melody of Sally's theme. And then even like, I don't think this was intentional, but the fact that Jack singing is done by Danny Elfman, but he's voiced by some other actor for like speaking lines. I feel like that's almost this kind of unintentional, cool nod to the fact that Jack as a character, his identity is torn between his wants and his need, and there and there's something that's not aligned with him. That's probably reading too much into the text here, but I just thought there are a lot of cool layers to these characters that are there. I wish more was present, but there there's a reason <laughs> there's a reason why this movie has withstood the test of time despite the fact of all of its flaws. It's just cool shit. Indeed. <laughs> I mean, I I think obviously the most iconic moment is on the hill, and which is where Jack's lament happens, and that, of course, where the finale with him and Sally happens. And that is just a real good visual. Very iconic for a reason. Good job. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like that... <laughs> Those moments on the hill. And I mean, I think that, like I mentioned, during Jack's lament when he's up there is like the moment that I'm most emotionally invested in the movie. 
So it, it sort of resonates for me in the same way that the um, two sons scene does in Star Wars, where mm-hmm. I'm like, this is the moment I'm most emotionally invested in the plight of this character because like something about the visual and the audio, the score is really hitting hard and like you really understand the character so well in this moment and it's really doing what movies are meant to do. And so I think there's a reason that like that image is what, when you think of Nightmare Before Christmas, you think of that image of Jack on the pale with the big moon in the background. That's what they put on the cover. It's for your reason. It's good. That song is such a f***ing showstopper. Oh, somewhere deep inside of these bones and emptiness began to grow There's something out there far from my home A longing that I've never known I mean, that's the thing that there's like, in my opinion, at least four songs that will get stuck in your head afterwards. It's Jack's Lament, Sally's song, the Oogie Boogie song, and What's This? Like, those songs are just... They're just so good. Oh, I totally get Kidnap the Santa Claus stuck in my head. Oh, that's... Kidnap the Santa Claus. Kidnap the Santa Claus. Lock him up real tight. Throw away the key and then turn off all the lights. First, we're going to set some bait inside the There are so many individual elements that are just fun and delightful, which is why... Unfortunately, I think this movie is so good for marketing purposes. Like, I know that Disneyland, every Halloween, Nightmare Before Christmas basically takes over. Well, it literally takes over the Haunted Mansion. The Haunted Mansion becomes Nightmare Before Christmas theme every Halloween. And I'm like, I I don't like the Nightmare Before Christmas version of the ride. And we (laughs) used to go to Disneyland a lot during October because it's a good time to go. And so I was like, always very frustrated because I was like... (laughs) Y'all. For people who don't know, like, you were one of those families that would go to Disneyland like three times a year or something like that. Yeah. I mean, we used to have annual passes. So I am a big Disney person. And the funniest thing about us doing this movie is you had forgotten it was Disney. And I was like, (laughs) yeah, it is. (laughs) Well, that's the thing is that even Disney didn't want this movie to be Disney at first until they realized, oh. They really want it now. Yeah. They hold, do they? I mean, there, there's a lot of like, it's not, it's not important to the movie. It's just a fun movie. Like, it's a fun movie to put on around Halloween time or Christmas time and to get into the spirit of the holiday. I'm notoriously unfestive. <laughs> and I actually deeply dislike Christmas movies for the m- large part. For some reason, I have like a thing against them. So this. I would count this not as a Christmas movie, but in the grand debate about whether this is a Halloween or Christmas movie, I would argue it's a Halloween movie. But yeah, I can't really empathize with what you're saying, but I I theoretically understand it. Well, you do have all sorts of trauma tied to Halloween, so there is that. There you go. I'm glad to see that our opinions have not changed at all since childhood. (laughs) (laughs) I really thought it would. I was actually quite surprised. I was like, yeah, I still feel the same way about this movie, which is is funny because I definitely, I thought I was actually going to really dig it. I was like, I'm going to be a convert. Mm. But no. 
has failed to convert me. Ah, uh, not this time. Oh, but one thing I did, I did discover on this rewatch that I didn't know, I had no idea that the person who voiced Sally is Moira from Schitt's Creek. <laughs> so I was like, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> that was a fun discovery. Not for this rewatch, but recent only recently found out that Danny Elfman was the singing voice for Jack. I wanted to, I was looking for articles. I was like, how did Danny Elfman like land the gig as singing? Was it just like assume? Because he hasn't really done that for anything else. So I was like, I tried to find whether like it was just that his demos were so good they were like, you must play Jack. But like I couldn't find anything talking about it. And to be fair, I only spent like, I don't know how long on it. Not that, not super long, but I'm sure there's a story there. I'm very intrigued by it. I mean, he said that he really, again, understood what Jack was going through and therefore the songs were really easy for him to write and perform. But apparently he's done uh, live performances as Jack since, which is also fun. Whoa. Yeah, like where like an orchestra will be playing along to the whole movie and he's he's gone and performed the vocal bits. I just think that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> Since we're closing on irrelevant information, I love the <laughs> fact that his his band's name was Oingo Boingo. <laughs> uh, I find that delightful. Yeah, Danny Elfman's like a an interesting dude. He is very interesting. And incredibly I've, talented. I've become more into like, yeah, I've gotten more into composers recently. And uh, he's done some like wildly divergent stuff, but always, like with all the composers, I feel like always has that distinct style. Yeah. I feel like we've talked a lot of shit about this movie that's beloved by hordes of people. <laughs> and yeah, talk some really inappropriate shit <laughs> on <laughs> this episode about a uh, children's movie. Um... <laughs> So, oh, uh, yeah, we're doing positive things. Oh, uh, well, no comment. Uh, uh, what else? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, like, subscribe, buy books from our bookshop affiliate link. Even Indeed. though this was a movie, we're normally about books. <laughs> and I'll also just say again, if you have requests for books that you would love to hear us discuss. We are going to be discussing a book upcoming that has been requested by my sister-in-law. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but you don't have to be family to make requests. You can be anybody. Strangers, colleagues, friends, all of the above. And we'll be back with Jane Austen. <laughs> In contrast to this. <laughs> That is not the book that was recommend or requested of us. That you'll no, you'll see. Not. That was a Morgan request because Morgan loves Jane Austen, I do. and I guess I love Jane Austen too. Maybe I'll yeah, hate this next knows? one. We'll find out. Yeah, you'll read it and you'll be like, actually, Pride and Prejudice was a fluke. Listen to the next episode to find out. But we've we've rambled a lot. That we let's stop. Until next time. <laughs> <laughs> bye bye. Hasta la vista. What's this? What's this? I haven't got a clue. What's this? Why it's completely new. What's this? Must be a Christmas plan. What's this? It's really very strange.